You're listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org. My name is Pete Betke. I want to welcome all of you. I am uh, the director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics um, here at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, as well as an um, economics professor and philosophy professor here at the university. Um, the F.A. Hayek Program supports mainly graduate uh, research and education efforts. Um, over uh, our time at Mercatus, we've had sort of three major research initiatives. Uh, one of the first ones was called Global Prosperity Initiative, um, which studied economic development uh, from an institutional uh, perspective. Um, that led to an offshoot called Enterprise Africa. Um, and then in 2005, uh, we started a Katrina project. Um, and uh, then that led to further development of research in crisis economics more in general. A common theme between these, the relationship between economic institutions and political institutions, and especially how, what happens when you put stress on those institutions. Um, we are trying to understand the resiliency of self-governing democratic societies. And in order to do that, what we did was we looked at the social and cultural elements associated with self-governing democratic societies, political and legal uh, issues that are involved, and economic and commercial, and in, and in particular, the interaction of all three um, as, as determinants of the resiliency that we see. So Katrina gave us a natural experiment in a very similar way that the collapse of communism had given us an earlier uh, uh, sort of natural experiment and the failure of development planning efforts to generate convergence um, in the world and economic growth. Uh, Superstorm Sandy, unfortunately, uh, provided another uh, sort of a, a case for us and another community for us to study. And that's what we're here today to talk about um, and actually to um, acknowledge the great work that was done on that. Um, this book here, uh, Community Revival in the Wake of Disaster, is all about issues having to do with local entrepreneurship and dealing with crisis moments and this ongoing research that we're engaged in here. Um, this is work by uh, my colleague Virgil uh, Storr, uh, Stephanie Halfley Balch, and Laura Grube. Okay? And uh, so today, the way that we're going to start this conversation is we're going to hear from Virgil. And then we'll just go down the line here from various experts. Uh, Virgil, wait a second, because I want to actually describe why the experts are the experts. Uh, one of the things that's really fascinating about our project, by the way, and maybe you can ask a question about this later on, is how is it that scholars who focus on the idea that we should not necessarily trust experts from afar right, to have an expertise in critiquing experts. Kind of an interesting question for us to all examine because a large part of what we're trying to do when we address the resiliency of these societies is actually see the power that exists in the local communities rather than from people from afar fixing problems for people, 
right? And this is in the tradition of Eleanor Ostrom as well, um, which, and, and her work, which is also on these issues. But so Virgil Storr is the Don Lavoie Senior Fellow at the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics, and the Senior Director of Academic and Student Programs at Mercatus. Um, he's also a research associate professor in the Department of Economics um, here at George Mason. He's the author or co-author of several articles and books on community recovery after disasters, including uh, the book How We Came Back, uh, Voices from Post-Katrina New Orleans with uh, Nona Martin-Store and Emily Chamley-Wright. Um, this book, um, I think, is also very much a part of our project and what we sort of stand for, which was if the human sciences are about what people think and believe, you have to listen. One of my favorite economists, Frank, uh, Fritz Machlup, wrote an article years ago, which was called What If Matter Could Talk? And the way that he presents the argument is he, a professor is giving a talk in class, and he's talking about the molecules, and he shows the, the you know, uh, it's old days, so it's not PowerPoint, it was the overheads. And all of a sudden, from the overhead, the molecule, like, seems like you're getting it wrong, you know, like that, and starts talking back to him, right? Well, that's what we face in the human sciences, which is different from the natural sciences. Uh, my, my favorite economist of all time, Ludwig von Mises, used to say, when you throw a rock into water, it sinks. When you throw a stick into water, it floats. If you throw a man into water, he must decide to sink or swim. And, uh, and so we wanted to see, actually, in these stress situations, how it is that social capital and social formations get torn apart and then get reformed again. And Virgil has been the lead on that um, and, and delving into all of that. And his own uh, work besides this work on... Uh, so how we came back is important because you got to listen to the voices. But um, in his, his other work on uh, sort of uh, what you could call cultural economics um, and the culture of the market, he's made major uh, steps forward. Uh, we sometimes get uh, mentioned as a pirate study place. Uh, Virgil's one of the first pirateologists. Uh, that was his doctoral dissertation um, as well. And he is also the co-author on this book. Um, and we will be hearing from him in two seconds. Now I have uh, Daniel Aldrich, who is a professor of political science and co-director of the Security Resilience Studies Program at Northeastern University. His research has focused on post-disaster recovery, counter-violent extremism, and interactions between civil society and the state. He's the author of several books on disaster recovery, including Building Resiliency, Social Capital, and a Post-Disaster Recovery. And then we'll hear from uh, Lori Peake who is a professor at the Department of Sociology and co-director for the Center uh, for Disaster and Risk Analysis at Colorado State University. She studies vulnerable populations in disasters with special emphasis on the experience of low-income families, racial and ethnic minorities, women, and children. She's written several books, including Children of Katrina with Alice Fatherhill, Fothergill, did I get that right? Yeah, I'm bad at languages. Anyway, uh, including the English language. Um, uh, behind, the, behind the backlash, Muslim Americans after 9-11. And then finally, we'll hear from Emily Chamley Wright, um, who is the provost and dean at Washington College, as well as a senior research scholar and board member at the Mercatus Center uh, at George Mason University. 
uh, my intellectual sister, I should add, uh, here from back at uh, when we were in graduate school. Um, and she uh, was a lead researcher on the uh, Mercatus Center Gulf Coast Recovery Project, um, leading extensive ethnographic study of New Orleans and Houston after Hurricane Katrina. She's authored several books, including The Culture and Political Economy of Recovery, Social Learning, and Post-Disaster Environments, as well as How We Came Back uh, with Virgil Store and Nona Martin. So without any interventions further from me, let's turn it over to Virgil. And the way we will go is that Virgil will give a presentation, then Daniel, then Laura, and then uh, Lori, and then, and then uh, Emily. So please welcome Virgil Store. So thank you, Pete, for that introduction. I also I meant to give a brief overview of the central arguments in the book, and I'll do that in a second. Before I get there, though, I wanted to, there are a few thank yous that I wanted to, to give in order, that I think are in order. First, I want to thank Pete for a decade, over a decade ago, inviting me to be a part of the Gulf Coast Recovery Project at Picatus. That he's, he, he sort of underplayed his role in that, but it was really Pete's academic entrepreneurship, his academic vision that drove that project, and that's a project that's successful by any measure that you would judge an academic project. It's, it's one that generated five books, over a dozen book chapters, over 40 academic articles that came out of that project. And so I wanted to thank Pete for allowing me to be a part of that project. I also wanted to thank Mercatus for creating the intellectual space for that project. It's a project that, that would not have happened if they, they weren't open to it. And so I want to thank them for that. And I want to absolutely thank the 300 plus people who allowed us to interview them during the course of that project, that many of them took times out of their lives, which were at a time when they were potentially the most difficult parts of the times in their lives to speak to us. And I'm truly honored that they, they took the time to talk to us. I want to thank uh, Daniel and Laurie and Emily for being a part of this panel. That They are people that I've benefited from reading a great deal. And I'm, I'm really honored and proud that they would uh, be a part of that. So the overview, book Community Revival in the Wake of Disaster. It's a book that I co-wrote with my colleagues, Stephanie Hafley-Balch and Laura Group. So I spent August 29th, 2005, basically watching Hurricane Katrina beat up New Orleans. And I spent the days that follow sort of watching the, the effects of that storm and its aftermath. Uh, unfold on TV. I'm a Bahamian, some of you know that, that I was born in the Bahamas, which means that I'm an experienced hurricane watcher. I've been watching hurricanes from I was a little child, from as young as five. I can remember peeking out of a sliver in the storm shutters as, you know, watching debris be, being cast about, watching trees sway and bend and, and sometimes break over. And so I'm an experienced hurricane watcher. But although I'm an experienced hurricane watcher, I've been watching hurricanes all my life. The truth is, I don't think I ever saw anything like I saw in those in that August 29th in the days that, that followed. That a city that have seemed to be completely underwater. The people, you know, a dozen feet in some areas, over a dozen feet in some areas, that people stranded on rooftops, the waiting to be rescued with signs penciled on the ceilings, like on their roofs, like, please help or save me. And then people wading through waist-high waters, carrying a garbage bag that maybe just had 
sort of everything that they managed to save from their homes on that day, sometimes carrying a small child that they were trying to, to shepherd to safety. And then eventually, as the days passed and we got more of the images of, of what happened, scenes from the Superdome in the convention center, the official uh, sort of disaster evacuation, disaster shelter sites, we seen these images of masses of people who had obviously been beaten up by Katrina, but had also been neglected by the, or seemed to be neglected by the emergency relief services. And then eventually, it's, you got the tours of the various neighborhoods, right? Homes, missing roofs, missing walls. Sometimes homes completely washed away, just the foundations remaining. And the question then, the question for some time following then was, can this community recover? And if it could recover, how might it recover? The reasons to doubt, actually, that it would or even could recover. One reason is that disaster recovery is, amongst other things, a massive collective action problem. That it's a circumstance where if we could cooperate, if we could find a way to cooperate, it might be in our collective interest to do so, but it's in no one's individual interest to contribute to that joint effort unless and until you're sure that others were gonna contribute as well. One of the reasons that disaster recovery is a massive collective action pro um, problem is that the cost of rebuilding after disaster are extremely high. It's not just the money and time that it takes to rebuild a home, but it's the psychic cost of picking through damaged, uh, a damaged home where one may have grown up, picking through lost mementos and keepsakes. And then there's, of course, the opportunity cost of spending time rebuilding a damaged and destroyed home rather than building a life for you somewhere else. And while the costs, though, are extremely high, the benefits are at best uncertain. And one of the reasons that the benefits of recovering from, of deciding to return and rebuild after disaster are uncertain is because there's so many questions that you would want to have answers to before deciding whether or not it was in your interest to return that you just can't of answers to, there's, there's, it's difficult for you to find answers to. Those questions like, what will this community be like after a recovery period? In five, six, seven years, what will this community be like? That's a, a question whose answer is gonna impact whether or not you think it's a good idea for you to have returned or not. That what business opportunities will exist? If I'm a business owner, will I be able to find people to hire? Will I be able to find people to sell to? Will I be able to find suppliers for the goods and services that I want to provide. If I'm a sort of regular person, regular employee, will I have a place to work once the recovery period is, has passed? The, what public services will exist? So is the school where my daughter went goes to school, is that going to reopen? Is it going to be of the same quality of, as the school was prior to the disaster? Is it going to be worse? So we, what are the opportunities going to exist? What are my disrupted social networks going to look like? that are the church groups that I belong to, or are the clubs that I belong to, are they gonna be reestablished after the disaster has happened, after the recovery period is, is underway, or, or will they not? Will my neighbors come back? Is my neighborhood gonna look and feel the same as it did before the storm? That these questions, as I mentioned, are hard to answer. They're arguably hard to answer in regular times, but certainly hard to answer after the disaster. One reason is that you know, after disaster is a chaotic, uncertain period. But another reason is that the answers to those questions are going to depend on the answers that other people would give to those same questions. The worst the disaster 
in that kind of thing, the more difficult it is to actually find out, to figure out, to guess at the answers that others will have to that kind of question. And in that sort of circumstance where the cost of rebuilding are high, where the benefits are at best uncertain, where calculating the benefits is in part dependent on what other people would answer to these questions that are very hard to answer questions, the rational move, the sensible move in that instance for every disaster victim is to really wait and see, right? To let other people answer the question first and then make the decision about whether or not you're gonna return or not, depending when you have a better picture of what the community is gonna look like down the road. But of course, if that's the rational move for you after you've suffered from a disaster, that's also the rational move for everyone else. The sensible thing for everybody to do in, in a context where you have this massive collective action problem is to wait and see, to let other people go first, to put, in, put it in economies, the risk of being a first mover may be prohibitive in such a situation. And the dominant strategy is to, to sit out and let other people uh, make the first move. And if that's the case, then if that is the rational move for everybody to, to make after a disaster, then you don't get post-disaster recovery. You don't get a community bouncing back. You have everybody waiting on the sidelines for others to make the decision to return before they do. And if it's the case that the worse the disaster, the harder it is to finance these questions, maybe the more pronounced the collective action problem is that exists. And the collective action problem after Hurricane Katrina seemed particularly pronounced, right? $100 billion worth of damage, hundreds of thousands displaced, hundreds of, th hundreds of thousands of homes uh, damaged or destroyed with significant damage. But yet, the city is recovering. Some sections of the city, in fact, have recovered. And so the question is how? In the book, the answer that Stephanie, Laura, and I provide is the entrepreneur. The, we argue in the book that the entrepreneur helps to solve the collective action problem associated with disaster recovery. And we have a, I should note now that we have a broad definition of, of the entrepreneur that we adopt in the book. So we don't just limit ourselves to talking about the commercial entrepreneur who's you know, seeking a profit in the marketplace. We also include and we also talk about the role of social entrepreneurs and, and political entrepreneurs, ideological entrepreneurs, that we adopt a definition of entrepreneurship that's really just a change agent, right? That, that somebody looking for opportunities to make the world, their world, either their small world or the, the larger world a better place and then go, go about the business of pursuing those uh, opportunities. Specifically in the book, we argue that the entrepreneurs do at least three things to facilitate community revival after a disaster. Uh, the first thing they do, we argue, is that they provide needed goods and services. It's a pedestrian point, but it's an important point that recovery involves replacing damaged things and rebuilding damaged homes and businesses. These, through their businesses, these entrepreneurs, and through their char charities and through their social groups and what have you, that these entrepreneurs, the ones that we highlight in the book, provide needed goods and services that people need to replace the stuff that was damaged and the homes that, were, that needed to be rebuilt. That we also argue that the entrepreneur works, entrepreneurs work after disasters to restore and replace disrupted social networks. That after Katrina, uh, I mentioned before, but members of the same community, members of some cases, the same family were evacuated, were displaced, were evacuated to sometimes quite far from places around the, 
United States. And one of the things that entrepreneurs did after uh, Hurricane Katrina was work to reconnect those disrupted social networks and create spaces for new social networks to, to, to form. A third thing that we highlight that entrepreneurs do is that they signal that community rebound is likely and in fact is already underway. That they acted in many cases as the first movers. That they adopted the risk associated with being the first movers and act in so doing acted as focal points for members of their community who were looking for a way to, to get back, looking for a way to rebuild. That, and so, so through their efforts and their example, they actually encouraged members of that community to come back and rebuild. In the book, we describe in detail, highlighting a, a few entrepreneurs that actually perform these roles based on the interviews that we conducted uh, in New Orleans and after Hurricane Katrina, but also in uh, New York, New Jersey after Hurricane Sandy. To see exactly how they do it, though, you have to read the book. Thanks. <laughs> So let me begin by thanking the authors for bringing me in for a really important discussion. I think, for me at least, actually Virgil's story brought home some memories. The reason I'm in this field right now in 2016 is because in the summer of 2005, I moved from Boston to New Orleans for six really good weeks down there with my family. Uh, we had a house, a banana tree in the backyard, a little kiddie pool, and then we had to leave with a million of our neighbors and friends on the 29th of August. And the period following when Tulane was shut down for almost six months, and we struggled to understand what's going on here, that really brought me into this field. So it's an honor to be here today and sort of close that loop on my own experiences in New Orleans. And also, by the way, Virgil and I have actually had uh, almost eight years of emails back and forth, but never met. So this was a nice thing to see that you really exist, as opposed to being the figment of my imagination, like Pete's dragon. So... I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, my job today is not just to be the cheerleader for this book, which we all should be, by the way, whatever you're doing in your academic careers or personally, this book should be read, but also to give some suggestions for all of us. I'll begin with the strengths of the book, and I think there are very many of them. You know, first of all, most of us in the field of disaster recovery, whether in policymaking down the street in Beltway, right here in D.C., or in our academic classrooms, think about the government as the main actor in the recovery field. I think most of us in 2016 envision if there's a disaster like Carmine, for example, or Sandy or anything else going on, the government is this white knight that comes in to save all of us. I think that's because we've had 100 years of sort of misleading information. 105 years ago, for example, in major disasters, the government wasn't involved at all. The central government, the federal government back then, got requests all the time to go out to states to help out. Guess what they said? No. Red Cross got involved, state government got involved, locals got involved, churches, synagogues, mosques got involved, but no federal government. And now in 2016, this has kind of flipped. Our expectations during disasters is that somehow the federal government is this white knight that will come in and, and save us all. So I'm really thrilled that we have a narrative that has not received enough coverage. As you asked early on in the book, you know, this idea of recovery is done quite well by amateurs, not FEMA members, right? not DHS people, not experts like us, people who live nearby somehow figure out what to do and they do it themselves. As Virgil already said, we have these entrepreneurs as agents for social change who make it easier and more attractive for their friends, neighbors, colleagues, and people living down the block to come back with them at the same time. And this really should be talked about more broadly. 
I also really appreciate in the book, we have amazingly deep theory here. And there's actually a great chapter we should all read again on the idea of recovery as this collective action problem. My own experiences in Japan actually had strong resonance with this. I'll just give two examples quickly. In 1995, there was a massive earthquake in Japan. Thousands of people died. And during that earthquake, some neighborhoods burned to the ground and others self-organized bucket brigades put out the fire. Now, of course, we'd all imagine that we live in a place that if there's a fire, somehow we'll get out there with the buckets, right? The reality was it wasn't the case. Mano and Mikuro were side by side, very similar in every way, but somehow one of them got together, got water from the river, brought those buckets, put the fires out. The others watched as their neighborhood burned down. And in interviews later, people said, look, we'd worked together in the past. We had the ability to trust each other. If Mrs. Tanaka said, get the bucket, I did so. So that moment when the disaster strikes, the ability to work collectively is really critical. And then after the disaster in Kobe, the government of Kobe, the local government, offered an amazing deal. Any condo building in the city with debris could be cleaned up for free on one condition. Every single member of the condominium had to agree in writing. What percentage of those condos do you think ended up with the deal? 80%? That's an optimist. 41%. Less than half of the condominiums could simply find their neighbors Fax numbers, last names, email addresses back then. How do you find a neighbor? You know them before the storm. How do you get to agree on something because they trust your judgment? This is a panel that's worth doing. So that's the kind of moment when we see in action how critical collective action is during a disaster. That's one theory that's undermining this amazingly strong book. Three other ideas I want to talk about. One is this idea of signal to noise that Emily's worked on for a long time. Post-disaster, the government has every incentive to tell us Everything is fine, come on back, pay your taxes. But the reality is that's one signal in a broad mix of signals going on after disaster. Locals who live nearby know, is my favorite barista back at Starbucks? Is my school open again? Can I buy gas at a local gas station? Are stores open to buy food in? Is there a place for my kid to go to school? Those signals aren't being sent by town hall or by city hall. Those only come from neighbors or from entrepreneurs. So this moment, of the signal-to-noise ratio can only be solved if the entrepreneurs are there giving strong, reliable signals. There's another problem we see here, a really powerful one, of the exit and voice problem. The immediate challenge for any survivor, myself included, is do I go back to a damaged home, a damaged business, and rebuild? Or do I move someplace nearby like Baton Rouge and build a life again? You can see, by the way, I'm in Boston right now, so I guess for me the exit was the choice I used. But in any case, exit and voice, what determines whether or not you go back to an area? We already heard from Virgil the ideas of psychological costs, the financial costs, the opportunity costs. Those kind of social ties, the kind of connections you have, really do drive that kind of decision. Finally, underscoring the entire book is the role of social capital. I could talk for several hours about that, but I won't. But the basic idea is very simple. The kind of drivers that bring us back, that help us work collectively, those are not artificial. They have to come from existing relationships that we have already with neighbors, friends, and colleagues. So these are the kind of underpinnings for the book. Next, the fieldwork was amazing. You know, imagine your house has been destroyed. There's a knock at the door. Hi, my name is Virgil. I'm not from around here. Do you have 20 minutes to talk to me about your disaster? Right? And we have hundreds of interviews, hundreds of them that gave us the core data for this book. Now, I've been in India and North America and Japan doing disasters. Afterwards, I was incredibly impressed at the range and coverage of the fieldwork here. So again, all reasons to, to cheer this book on. 
Now I get paid for the read experts, which are my suggestions. Now, the book's done already. You guys are probably happy about that. But for us in the audience, the ABDs, the PhDs who are looking for a thesis, here's some ideas for you. A really mean critic would say that this book selects on the dependent variable. If we're interested in stories of success, that's really all we hear. If you wanted to hear more broadly about success and failure, or the broader universe of cases across these cities, post-Katrina and post-Sandy, we don't see it so strongly right now in this book. And I think for us as outsiders, we would recognize the book is incredibly strong in qualitative methods, but the quantitative stuff isn't quite there yet. So here's the, my proposal to all of us in the audience. We've seen before that books can change a field. Books can give us a new direction. So I think there's two areas this book can make us as scholars, as residents, as NGO members, think differently about our lives. One is to begin to collect and analyze data systematically, quantitatively, on these entrepreneurs in post-disaster communities. For example, what's the threshold that you need in a community? Is it five entrepreneurs per thousand people? 500 entrepreneurs per thousand people? I don't think we know right now. What's that critical number you need of people who leave their own comfortable existences someplace else and come back and begin pushing their neighbors to rebuild? That number can only be generated by doing work right now in the field. So I push all of us to think about what data do we need on those entrepreneurs, wherever it's right now in Florida, in Virginia, in South Carolina. The book also asks about polycentrism, the idea that multiple local ideas multiple sources of power are more impressive and more effective than one top-down approach. If that's true, how many of those networks do we need? How many organizations do we have to have that are bottom-up and locally based? One in a thousand, one in a hundred, one in five? So again, these are the kind of questions we should be thinking about now as the audience. What can we do now to go out and show those critics, those skeptics, this book is not only qualitative, but sets the research agenda also quantitatively. Finally, on the policy recommendations, I really want us to think broadly as a group now. You know, I had some time to think about this book now for a few months. I have five that I would add to the books, suggestions already. I think our job should not just be to step back and tell the government, step back yourselves, but to do more than that. And I would say our job should be to build the norms and institutions that make entrepreneurial behavior more likely. And here are five ways we might do that. One is to relax credit requirements for borrowing after disaster encourage local banks to open up their wallets to those SBAs, to those businesses trying to reform afterwards. We need more space for those entrepreneurs to begin borrowing money. Two, loosen bankruptcy laws post-disaster to allow for quicker restructuring of firms that we know can't make it back, but the capital and their entrepreneurs there might be able to do so. Three, give more training to entrepreneurs and to people who could be entrepreneurs, high school students and college ones in the area. Give them the skills they'll need to act as entrepreneurs, policy agents, post-disaster in their backyards. Four, allow more money from the federal and state governments for business incubators. How are we encouraging entrepreneurs to rebuild in areas like New Orleans? When I was there, there was one space in Broadmoor, one for 45 different companies looking to rebuild. That's not much space for your one share on your net Wi-Fi connection. We need more physical space and more fiscal space for these kinds of groups. Finally, loosen the broader tax laws in small businesses to allow them to delay filing their taxes, for example, and promote themselves locally using tax credits based on the disaster. So in short, this book is a fantastic opening for us as scholars, as NGOs and residents. I look forward to seeing the future. Thank you.
Okay, hi everyone. As Pete said, my name is Lori Peake and I'm a sociologist at Colorado State University. And I also co-direct our Center for Disaster and Risk Analysis. And I first really wanted to thank Claire and Elizabeth and Stephen and the entire staff at the Mercatus Center. They have been exceptionally gracious in organizing this and in bringing us here. And it's really a wonderful opportunity to be here today and to speak about this amazing book. And I also want to do acknowledge Virgil and Stephanie and Laura and the amazing work that they have done in, in bringing this decade-long project to completion. And I too hope that everyone in this room will take the time to read this really important book. I also on a personal note wanted to acknowledge three people who are here from my life. And so I started as a new professor at Colorado State University in 2005. And two of the first people I met when I was a new professor are here today. And so Janice Johnston was one of our PhD students. And even though she was a student, I think she taught me a lot more <laughs> than I ever taught her. And now she is here in DC and has an amazing amazing position and thank you for being here today and I also my first ever undergraduate honors student Alex Mitchell is here who went on to get a law degree at George Mason University and um, is just an exceptional being and force for good in this world and then finally I wanted to acknowledge Miss Norma Anderson who is the founder of the Bill Anderson Fund which is a fund dedicated to diversifying the field of disaster research and and emergency management. And in a few short years, Norma and her team have literally changed the, begin to change the face of this field, which is not reflective of the people who are studied and who are served in post-disaster context. So thank you for being here and thanks to the rest of you. So a few words before I begin with my comments on this book. I think it's important to always be really clear about the lenses through which we read scholarly work. And so as I dove into this book for the first time, and I had to read it two times through um, to make sure that I was grasping all of the key points because I am not an economist and I, I learned a great deal from this book. As a sociologist, as I was reading this book, um, I was also in the midst of finishing several po post-Katrina projects myself. So over the past 11 years, much of my waking hours, as well as I think many of my dreaming hours, have been consumed by Katrina, as I think is true for most of us here. Katrina still stands as the most costly and the sixth most deadly disaster in our nation's history. Over 1.2 million people were scattered across these United States. At one point, we had Katrina survivors in all 50 states of the United States. And to emphasize just how widespread the displacement was, there are 64 counties in the state of Colorado. At one point, we had Katrina survivors in all 64 counties of our state, which is 1,500 miles from the epicenter of that disaster. Also, over these past 11 years, as I have done work on Katrina, much of that work has been with marginalized populations, people who were struggling day to day before that disaster struck. And so I've done a lot of work with single mothers, low-income families, and children and youth. And so this question of 
how do people who are struck low by extreme events is a critically important question. And I think this book, in trying to help us to understand what may catalyze community recovery after disaster, asking that very question is critically important. And so now to the book at hand. So I argue that community revival in the wake of disaster offers a highly convincing case that commercial, social, political, and ideological entrepreneurs may serve as key drivers of post-disaster recovery. And our three esteemed authors make this argument through two primary means. First, the book opens with three really expansive and dense chapters that offer a review of economic theory and empirical studies that focus on the roles that entrepreneurs may play in innovating and ultimately driving social change in the aftermath of disaster. Then those three chapters are followed by four chapters that make up both the literal and the figurative heart of the book. Those four chapters zoom in and offer case studies that highlight the activities of actual entrepreneurs in the post-Katrina and post-Sandy recovery efforts. These case studies are vivid and they're compelling and they offer us as the readers a front row seat to observe how entrepreneurs first serve as goods and service providers, where entrepreneurs help to do things like mobilize donations and assist with the provision of things like healthcare, security, and construction labor, among other services. Second, this book shows how entrepreneurs may help to reestablish uprooted social networks and provide a space for social exchange of knowledge and resources. So for example, in the pages of this book, we meet one such entrepreneur, Ben Sishik, who opened a coffee shop in St. Bernard Parish as a business venture, but also because he saw that this devastated parish needed a space for residents to come together not just to have caffeine and free Wi-Fi and good pastries, but also a place where they could come together and actually share information about the recovery. The third thing that the book offers that entrepreneurs can and do do in the aftermath of disaster is to signal to others that recovery is indeed underway and then in exchange to help bring people back as they are working to reestablish these healthy institutions. These case studies really bring this book to life and help shine a bright light on the creativity, ingenuity, resolve, and grit that marked the activities of so many entrepreneurs in the post-Katrina and post-Sandy recovery environments. And although the authors had a large data set, they report that they had 353 interviews with uh, Katrina survivors in the New Orleans metropolitan area, as well as in Houston, as well as 16 post-Sandy interviews with residents of Far Rockaway. The case studies that are in the book actually highlight the activities of a relatively limited number of entrepreneurs, but they dive deep into their experience and reveal the ways that they actually did help to spur community recovery. I learned a great deal from this book and I appreciated the immense amount of effort that clearly went into it. I was also admittedly left with some pressing questions. And so here I would like to raise three of those. So number one, so what about the government then? 
The authors go to great lengths in both the introductory and the concluding chapters to emphasize that their recommendations do not argue against government responses per se, but they do argue against government responses that, quote, limit the scope of post-disaster entrepreneurship. The authors continue by noting that they are trying to move away from these old debates associated with whether public or private responses are most effective and instead move us toward discussions regarding whether entrepreneurs have, again, quoting, adequate space to act in post-disaster environments. Fair enough. But then, as the conclusions and recommendations proceed, the authors take a strong stance that government rules should be simplified, suspended, or eliminated altogether to ensure that entrepreneurs have, quote, the proper space to act and innovate in the aftermath of disaster. The federal government has poured billions of dollars into post-Katrina and post-Sandy response and recovery efforts. Indeed, at last count, according to the New Orleans Community Data Center, over $120 billion in federal funds have been dedicated to rebuilding the Gulf Coast since Katrina. Compare that to the $6.6 billion in philanthropic funds that have been poured into the Gulf Coast. So is the government supposed to continue to pour that amount of money into disaster response and recovery, but then get out of the way? eliminating or suspending their rules so that entrepreneurs can act. The entrepreneurs who are featured in this book often did take advantage of government loan programs such as the Small Business Administration loans and other rebuilding uh, features that were available from the federal government. And so I think this question about where money comes from, but then who controls that money after it arrives and who gets to do what with that money is a critically important question, which also leads me to a second big question that I could not shake after reading this book. So second, what about when entrepreneurs introduce changes that has negative and enduring consequences for the community? The authors acknowledge at the outset that entrepreneurs are not always benevolent do-gooders with positive motivations. As they note, entrepreneurs' motivations may vary widely, with some having a purely profit-driven motive, for instance, or others being ideologically driven and attempting to induce radical changes within any given environment. Yet, despite this acknowledgement, the authors proceed to cast entrepreneurs as heroic and courageous. And in fact, as Virgil so eloquently introduced the book today, he just used these words, that these change agents are the type of people that will make the world a better place. And those are indeed the types of people that we meet in the pages of this book. I do not dispute at all that the case studies in this book are indeed of people who I think most would describe as heroic and courageous and trying to make this world a better place. They are disaster survivors who fought to reopen schools, who brought free health care to some of the most disadvantaged places within New Orleans, who reopened businesses against all odds, and in fact, some who fought to save their entire neighborhoods from becoming a, quote, green dot on the map and turned into open space. 
But these individuals featured in this book, to a person, were all community insiders. They lived in the community before the disaster. They knew the community well. They were committed to its survival and its enduring vitality. As the authors are calling for the suspension or elimination of government rules, they only offer two sentences in the conclusion acknowledging that some entrepreneurs may do more damage than good. They state, quote, of course, not all entrepreneurs should have the space to act. For instance, the entrepreneurial looter is someone whose efforts should be blocked or discouraged. I will admit this left me somewhat perplexed because first, who gets to decide who should and should not have the space to be or not be an entrepreneur? Which of us is going to decide that? And second, if the rules are suspended or eliminated, then how can these so-called entrepreneurial looters be blocked? How can they be stopped from doing harm or doing enduring damage to these communities that have already been so damaged? Because all of the cases that are included in this book are of entrepreneurs who did seem to truly have the best intentions at heart for their communities, we don't meet the outsiders who we also know swooped into the Gulf Coast and also the East Coast after Katrina and Sandy respectively and took advantage of loosened regulations, who took extreme advantage of vulnerable and oftentimes undocumented workers and also of vulnerable residents such as low-income elderly, for example. Third and finally, I was left wondering after reading this, who gets to be an entrepreneur and who do the entrepreneurs ultimately help? This book offers some beautiful portraits of a diverse array of entrepreneurs, from Father Vienne, a Vietnamese priest in New Orleans East, who many point to as the, the primary leader who brought back an entire community an Orthodox Jewish leader in Far Rockaway who helped mobilize an entire community. We also meet African-American as well as working class white business owners as well as social entrepreneurs throughout the greater New Orleans metropolitan areas and also immigrant business owners who did great good. These entrepreneurs include both men and women of all different ages, and in many cases they were commercial as well as social and even moral entrepreneurs. The book does such a beautiful job of fleshing out the individual characteristics associated with these entrepreneurs, their ability to see a need to address and then to address that need, their innovative natures, their dynamism, their ability to mobilize resources and to build what we might call networks of care. But in addition to these personal characteristics, I also wanted to know more about what social structural elements must be in place for an entrepreneur to fully succeed. So for example, how do they work alongside as well as outside both the public and the private sector? What financial resources need to be available for these entrepreneurs to succeed? Both pre-existing resources, for example, we met some entrepreneurs who had enough cash on hand, like $20,000, to start up a business. Not all of us have that kind of money in the bank account. And so what does that mean for, again, who gets to be an entrepreneur? How do fault lines that mark our society, such as ongoing issues with racial, class, and gender discrimination, encourage or detour some entrepreneurs from successfully acting in the face of disaster? 
So in closing, let me say that I raise these questions with the utmost respect. This is a serious work that makes some serious arguments for serious change in how we do disaster response and recovery in this nation. There are obviously many thorny issues that I think still need to be addressed, but I sincerely thank the authors for leading us into this important conversation. Thank you. Oh, great. Again, my name is Emily Chamley Wright, and I'm provost and dean of the college at Washington College, an alumna of George Mason University, I think three times over, and, uh, and of the Mercatus Center, and, and like Pete said, a board member of the Mercatus Center. And it's an absolute honor to be back here. It's an honor to be in the presence of Colleen Moretta, who is, is like a second mom to me. Um, so now I'm going to stop crying. OK. Um, uh, I, I want to thank uh, Lori and Dan for uh, the the uh, challenges that that their comments bring to us because I'm really excited to hear what Virgil and Laura and Stephanie uh, might have to say right now. But these are the kinds of observations that lead to more work and lead to better work. So uh, I'm also looking forward to uh, the things that hopefully will you know many of us will write in response to the kinds of questions that you're posing. So I appreciate uh, those 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 questions. So as uh, uh, both Dan and Lori have pointed out, I mean, here, here are the really important vital functions that uh, the book highlights that entrepreneurs play in a post-disaster environment, providing essential goods and services, restoring social networks, and then also um, really signaling that powerful signal um, uh, role for entrepreneurship cannot be uh, understated. And I think that's one of the major strengths of, of the book. Um, but it leads to questions for me is why do entrepreneurs operate in contexts where the conditions are so extreme, where the payoffs are so uncertain? And, and Virgil's opening remarks really gets at this question. It's really a, a bit of a puzzle. Um, entrepreneurship can be practiced in many different contexts. Why here? Right? Why in the context where it's so difficult and so, and, and so uncertain? It, it seems as though uh, the, the usual explanations that economists have for entrepreneurial activity, which is the profit motive through arbitrage and innovation, doesn't seem to quite answer the question fully. And so here's a potential answer. Right? Like all human beings, entrepreneurs are storytellers right? uh, that situate we tell stories that help situate, make sense of, and lend greater, greater meaning to our action. And it's this, it's this question that, that I've seized on in response to uh, the book, is that how is it that storytelling and story craft fed into the entrepreneurial action, broadly construed as the authors um, have um, framed it in the book, how is that, that narrative and story craft really shape uh, the entrepreneur's action. That's the, that's the question that, that this book has uh, framed out for me and has, and has uh, challenged me to think more seriously about the role of storycraft and narrative in entrepreneurial action more generally. So for example, here's some of the reasons why uh, this has occurred to me. This was certainly true of, of community leaders. The community leaders in the Mary Queen of Vietnam uh, community as, as uh, Lori has just pointed out, Father Vienne is a great example of from the pulpit, he would say, our community has been through so much worse. 
we can do this. We can get through this. Our community suffered through the migration in the 1950s from North Vietnam to South Vietnam, and then again from South Vietnam circuitously, but eventually to New Orleans after the fall of Saigon. We established this community. We've been through so much worse. We can do this. And so that narrative, that story craft of t retelling one's own, the community's own history was critical. Similarly, in the Ninth Ward, storyteller after storyteller, the subject after subject we interviewed, um, told the story, there's no place like New Orleans. And specifically, there's no place like our Ninth Ward neighborhood, a neighborhood that had been, or neighborhoods, plural, that had been dis so disparaged in the popular media. Um, that, or the reason why people aren't coming back is because it was a lousy neighborhood uh, before Katrina. Not so, according to the people who did, choose to come back, and half of those of those still living in Houston three years later were also telling that same story. The others were telling a different story, right? Um, so we can look comparatively at, 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 at people who choose to come back and those who don't, but those who did choose to come back were telling this story, that there was no place like New Orleans. Similarly, in St. Bernard Parish, this is a, a predominantly white working class neighborhood even if they were themselves two or three generations removed from the trades, they told the story that theirs was a working community, a working class community. They knew how to engage in the processes of recovery. That's the story that they, was, they were telling over and over again to themselves, to others. And then, uh, as we also talked about, the Broadmoor uh, neighborhood that was threatened by the green dot of, of, of elimination in the post-disaster uh, planning process, they said, we are the heart of New Orleans, right? And they meant that um, in the sense of we're at the center of New Orleans, but we also represent the heart of New Orleans figuratively in our racial, ethnic, and uh, economic diversity. And so they told that story to themselves. And so this was definitely a part of the leadership story as the role of narrative. And so it got me to thinking, well, let's start to think through what role narrative plays systematically with entrepreneurial action. And there's four that I want to describe. One is that, that narrative craft can help to motivate others to situate the cost-benefit analysis in a more meaning-rich context. So taking it, you know, taking it out of the homo economicus con, uh, you know, construct of cost-benefit analysis and situating it in a more meaning-rich environment, that's one of the things that stories do, and I'll get to that in a moment. S the second thing that I think stories do is that they motivate others to return by reducing the perceived costs of engaging in the recovery process. Third, storytelling also, what do, we, what do we do in stories? In stories, we have characters, and we have character development, and there's, there are heroes, and there are villains, and who do we want to be? We want to be the heroes. We don't want to be the villains, right? And who do we want to vanquish? We want to vanquish the villains, right? Whether the villain is the storm itself or the flood itself or those political forces that we perceive as being aligned against us, those are our villains. We want to fight against them. Entrepreneurial action can be fueled by a narrative craft that situates st our stories in this kind of context. And then lastly, narrative also enables the entrepreneur, him or herself, to overcome his or her own fears, concerns of uncertainty, and the cost of engaging in the recovery process. Okay, so the first point, motivating others to return by situating the cost-benefit analysis in a more meaning-rich context. 
Members of the Vietnamese American community in the Mary Queen of Vietnam uh, uh, neighborhood of New Orleans East, many of them did uh, locate at least part um, uh, immediately after the storm in Vietnamese neighborhoods in uh, neighboring cities or in uh, in the evacuation sites. Um, there was lot there were lots of stories about how um, Vietnamese communities within those other cities uh, rallied to support uh, the uh, the Katrina victims, but. Person, but but this community was was famous for really having a very very high rate of recovery very early on in the process, and why was that? I mean, they could have reestablished their lives in a Vietnamese community in another city, right? If we just think about it in terms of a cost benefit analysis, it may have been much less costly for them uh, to just stay where they were in Houston or in, or in another city. But Dan Tran, who is one of our uh, interview subjects, gives us a clue as to what really what was going on in, in their framing. He says, we came back because we are all Vietnamese. This place is like our second homeland. So we have to come back to rebuild this place. So right there, right, by framing this neighborhood that from to the outside observer looks very, very normal. Right? It's not particularly spectacular. There's nothing spectacular about it to the, visually. But to this community, it was a second homeland. It was the place where they had rebuilt their lives that they had lost in Vietnam. The interviewer asks, did you ever think of not coming back? And Dan Tran says, as long as I am alive, I will stay here. Sometimes people get sick of this place, so they leave. But after a while, they come back. They went to Houston and other places after Katrina. Many of them go there, they come back. Right? So situating this cost-benefit analysis in something more meaningful, like it's not just how do I rebound immediately for myself, it becomes how do I restore my second homeland. The next role or function that, that Storycraft plays in entrepreneurship, I think, is that it helps others return by reducing the perceived costs of engaging in the recovery process. I mentioned that St. Bernard Parish had this ethos of being a working class uh, community that prided itself on its work, work ethic. One uh, uh, resident says, we in the parish, we are a self-sufficient type of community. We all work. We're almost 100% employed people in St. Bernard Parish. And because of the nature of the people that live in St. Bernard Parish, we're a blue-collar community. We're not afraid of work. We know what work is, and so it was devastating to our mind to see what happened to all of our properties. But we realized that, look, we got where we were, and we're the ones who are going to restore where we were. And we see this ethos come through in uh, key entrepreneurs like the owner of the local hardware store, who played a very important role in helping others to recover. The, having the hardware store come back was a, was a critical source of those goods and services that, that the entrepreneur provided. But notice the way in which he frames his story about why he came back. This particular entrepreneur, Frank Williams, he, he didn't have to come back. He was of a means that he could have, and he was close to retirement age. He could have not come back and been okay. He says, we survived. We're surviving. You know, you do what you got to do. We were out gutting houses for a while, cleaning out houses and stuff like that to try to make ends meet. And let me just say, this gentleman was not someone who was doing a lot of manual, who was doing any manual labor pre-Katrina. He was, he was very well established in the neighborhood uh, and, and, in, and in his career. He says, I mean, it's a nasty job. You got a foot of mud, you know. You know, 
we're not lazy people. We work. So, you know, we'll, so, we'll weed the street if we have to. You know, so that's a problem there. Both my wife and I are the same. We work together 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We had options too, okay? We could have taken the insurance money and got out of debt. But this is my all, you know? This is my job. This is where I set out and I have worked my entire life. So again, situating this in this context of this, I, I can do this, right? I've got greater capability. I can overcome these costs. Any good story has both heroes and villains in it. Uh, as I said, the, the, the storm itself was a, was a villain to some. For others, it was, uh, it was the forces of, um, of so-called support that were supposed to be there to help. Doris Vaudier was a, a social, one of the social entrepreneurs that um, was highlighted in, in the book. Uh, she was the superintendent of the St. Bernard School. Uh, schools who accepted, and this is part of her acceptance speech at the John F. Kennedy Profile and Courage Award. She says, it became more than clear that we were on our own. Our government had failed us. Promises of portable classroom buildings within 90 days secured through the mission assignment of the Army Corps of Engineers were broken. No housing for our teachers could be quickly secured by, by FEMA. And cleaning the muck, debris, and marsh remnants from our buildings was a task that would be ours. So we forged ahead without help from the state or federal governments locating our own portable classrooms and housing trailers, sealing deals with a handshake in the parking lots of uninhabited buildings, securing our own national disaster cleanup team, and relying on our own people. We had no patience for excuses, for bureaucracy, or for any obstacles that would delay our reopening. Now, Lori's point is a good one, right? I mean, there's, there's a little bit of a, of a romanticization going on here about her heroic role and the villainous role of, of the, of the uh, teams that we're supposed to support here. My point is not to weigh in necessarily on who, you know, whose des description was right. My point is that the story craft was incredibly important for Mrs. Vaudier to frame it this way so she had the sort of moral courage to get out there and to get back up and running every single day and to provide that kind of moral leadership within the community. So it's less about who, you know who whether or not the Army Corps of Engineers and the FEMA, and FEMA were as bad as she thought. I think that there's some good evidence to suggest that they were. Um, I'm sure that there were other other stories like in the in the Vietnamese community where FEMA actually helped them uh, quite a bit. You know, and that's and that's an important thing to balance out. And we've got to get the record right. My point is really more about how the entrepreneur is leveraging story craft to initiate action both for herself as well as others. And then lastly, enabling the entrepreneurs to overcome his or her own fears, concern, uh, concerns over those uncertainties and, and, and the cost of engaging in the recovery process. Alice Craft Kearney is one of the entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs who's um, uh, highlighted in the book. And she says that she knew what she needed to do because she had three very clear signs from God. And she walked us through those three very clear signs. You know, other, other past, uh, a pastor turned contractor in the Desire neighborhood said, this was God's plan for him. All right, so there's story craft about how do I, how do I um, uh, engineer my own personal action around stories. But this gives, a, I think, a, um, a very clear and compelling um, a picture of how um, story craft 
in essence, gets the entrepreneur's head around this, this task and, and wrestle, wrestling um, and, and, and calming down uh, the, the significance of the uncertainty and the, and the purposefulness of their action and highlighting the purposefulness of their action. Uh, this uh, uh, respondent was a, um, a diner owner in the Upper Ninth Ward. She says, I was really against opening this business at first, so I prayed about it, and I thought it would not happen. I thought God would not let it come to pass, but he did. So then I knew that's where he wanted me, he wanted me at. Once I got here, I saw why he wanted me here, because really, there was a lot to be done here. He used me here. This was in, in response to a question about whether she was connected to a local church. She said she didn't have time for, to go to a church. I was needed here, she says. And like I said, I got to pray and minister to the youth. This is a rough community, I could say. But it's a lot of love here, too, because what I found, if you give love, you get love back in return. The business was my life. When you have a small business, you don't have a life other than that. Outside of the business and the ministry that I've done on this corner, I don't have time for anything else. I'd be lucky if I got a little sleep, sleep in. But yes, it really, really was demanding a lot of, a, a lot of time, but I loved it. This was her preamble to then telling us why she came back and she rebuilt the diner after Katrina. Right? Again, she had a, a comfortable uh, life in a, um, a neighborhood that was outside of New Orleans. It was a relatively affluent neighborhood. She could have established a diner elsewhere, but she came back and she re rebuilt in the Upper Ninth Ward. If it was just a, a, a kind of stark cost-benefit analysis, I don't think she would have. But because she situated this business as a form of her ministry to the youth in the neighborhood, that became a more meaningful uh, context for her work. It also diminished the uncertainties and the, and the costs associated with that work. So in conclusion, uh, the, the main point here is that storytelling, I think, is critical for understanding how entrepreneurs engage in the recovery process. But I would also say that this, that this hopefully gets some of the economists in, in the room thinking that storytelling more generally is important to how we understand entrepreneurship and their economic action. So thank you very much. Virgil or Stephanie or Laura, do you have anything you want to react to before we open it up? Yeah, let me just do something really quickly. One, I want to thank all three of the, the panelists. I thought they were really kind, really um, sweet things to say about the book, but also really fair challenges that, that got put to us. One that I that I do want to sort of address because it came up both in Daniel's and in, in Lloyd's is this question about the policy recommendations in the book and and. Uh, the one of the thing, one of the strategies we adopted in the book was we we sort of didn't intend to do a fully worked out set of policy proposals. Right? That what we really wanted to do was frame the way we thought the policy question should be asked. Right? And it was it was something like this: If we're right that entrepreneurs play this important role in the market, and and so this came out, uh, we didn't make it explicit, but this came out in, in actually Lloyd's Lloyd's comments about the entrepreneurs. There's a wide diversity of entrepreneurs many of whom were unpredictable entrepreneurs and the roles that they might play in was actually probably you know similarly unpredictable if that's true then in that context then what's government to do right as governments deciding how to spend 120 
billion dollars, what kinds of questions that they should they have in their minds? One of those questions we think is, look, is spending this money in this way going to interfere with the capacity of these individuals to actually help spur recovery, or if it's or it's going to is it going to crowd it out, or is it going to be helpful to them in, in, in doing that kind of thing? And that needed to be a question we thought that, that became a part of that conversation in a way that it, we felt at least that it's not a part of. Or similarly, uh, you know. Governments adopt rules. They adopt rules about how you can spend certain resources. They adopt all sorts of rules about what kinds of businesses are allowed to function, what kinds aren't. They adopt all sorts of rules about how one might should go about engaging in certain practices, even you know, for social entrepreneurs or for commercial entrepreneurs. And if, if we're right, though, that these entrepreneurs play this huge function, and we're right that it's sort of hard to know who these entrepreneurs will be and whether you know, to identify them ahead of time, then what, what's the nature of the rules that, that they should adopt in, in that kind of thing? Should they adopt rules that assume up front that they know the answers to those questions? This kind of practice is going to be really useful. This kind of practice, this kind of enterprise is going to be really, you know, helpful in getting communities back or not. Or should they assume a kind of humility in the face of that, given that it seems like these entrepreneurs Aren't predict, it's hard to predict who they might be in advance, right? And so rules, for instance, like a rule, for example, that says, look, only locally licensed contractors can um, work in a particular area. So that's a rule that, that you can sort of, sort of think through what the argument for that would be. We don't, we absolutely don't want people in their most desperate times and the most desperate circumstances being taken advantage of contractors who are illegitimate and that might cheat and that might sort of take advantage of them, right? The, one, of the challenge, one of the problems with that kind of rule, though, is that it comes at a time when the, the demand for, say, contractors is exploding, right? And so then the only people that you have in the, that are actually working as contractors then are locally licensed contractors or people who are willing to ignore the rules, right? And so you set up a circumstance, just by that rule that's sort of meant to protect, you set up a circumstance where you put people, you force people into a circumstance where they're dealing with people who are unscrupulous, willing to break the laws, willing to break the rules, and what have you. And so you sort of, and so one of the things that we wanted to encourage was reimagining those kinds of rules and those kinds of laws and saying, well, how do we think about rules that don't stop the people who are the virtuous entrepreneur that we want to encourage and, 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 and you know stay away from the kinds of rules that sort of you know sort of encourage the the villain or the unscrupulous mm -hmm. entrepreneur that that the lawyer I think is right to be concerned about. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the F.A. Hayek program, visit ppe.mercatus.org.